You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. Welcome back to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast with myself, Owen Walker. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Mark Faulkner on trauma outcome scores. So what I want to do is just examine the various trauma scores that feature in both out-of-hospital and in-hospital care to measure trauma. So these being anatomical, physiological and combined trauma scores. So we're going to look at why these are important, the three main broad types, uh, some of the origins uh, and the reliability and sensitivity of these scores. We're also going to examine the pros and cons of various scores such as the GCS and the history behind the GCS. We'll examine the, the trauma score, the revised trauma score, the Apache and the CRAM scales. We're going to look at the abbreviated injury score, injury severity, the new injury severity score, TRIS, scoring and finally the ASCOT score as well. We're going to examine some of the limitations to these scores, as well as the adage and advantage of them, and look at some of the more long-term reasons for use as well. So to do this, I have Mark Faulkner with me. Mark is no stranger to the podcast. He is currently a consultant paramedic with London Ambulance Service. He's also a clinical advisor for major trauma within the LAS. He sits on the Pan-London Trauma Steering Group, as well as a number of national trauma groups. So he's been involved in major trauma for over 12 years uh, since the inception of the London trauma system and has developed and refined the London trauma triage tool. Mark, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Owen, and thanks for having me again. Mark, I wonder if we could just start by getting you to speak to the importance of of scoring and or rating trauma in the pre-hospital patients. Yes, I think probably the first bit of which is we should be really open about what this is. And this is the dark arts of trauma research. And really, when we start talking about this, um, I every time I talk about this, I kind of feel the themes of Harry Potter in my head and the witchcraft and wizardry of kind of trauma research. But I think it's really important for us as pre-hospital clinicians to be really aware of these scores Um, to understand some of the limitations of these scores, because every paper you pick up about major trauma has some degree of injuries to scoring in it. And I think it's really helpful to understand that because it allows you to get a proper insight into what the literature is telling us, to be aware about some of the shortcomings of the literature and to an extent, some of the biases within the literature. Um, They are really a cornerstone of trauma research because by scoring the patient and looking at the patients in a numerical way, it allows comparison of the patients. And at a system level, and I stress this should be at a system level, it allows prediction of mortality and therefore effectiveness of intervention and effectiveness of system. So by having a score, numerating that score, you can look at exactly what should happen to that patient um, in theory and the effectiveness of intervention and the effectiveness system. But this is dark art stuff. And with dark arts, there is always something that will impact on that score. And you've got to understand that score to be able to apply it. Hopefully that answers that question in a slightly roundabout way. It does actually, and um, score interesting. And we'll look at this um, shortly around scores over time, but also sensitivity and specificity. Uh, and we'll look at um, some of the more well-known and 
less well-known scores actually and, and dig into those i guess it, my next sort of pivot and question would be around these three domains mark around the physiological the anatomical and or the combined scoring could i just get your thoughts on on, on those domains yeah absolutely i think the first thing to say is this is a vast topic there are over 50 different scoring systems and when i did some published some stuff about this a little while ago a very quick google search found over 50 scores um you and there are often you'll pick up a trauma paper and go oh i've not heard of that score before let's have another look at that um we look at these as the pure anatomical scores looking at what the tissue injury load is so very much around what the tissue injury has been tissue injury is and what that load of injury looks like you then have a group of scores which are kind of the physiological scores and they look at the physiological values of the patient heart rate blood pressure and what goes on with those in respect to the injury and then there is the kind of cover all or the combined scores that take a physiological measure and an anatomical measure and combine them together to give you some form of scoring for the trauma patient um, and there are a significant number of these some of these are applicable pre-hospitally in terms of you can apply them to the patients there and then. And some of them will be things that we already know what lots about. But some of them you won't be able to do. And certainly some of the anatomical scoring requires really a complete list of patient injuries to be able to undertake that. So looking at the GCS, because I think, you know, as far as indeed trauma scoring and injury severity it's, it's probably the most commonly used and certainly in the uk but globally as well could you could you maybe speak to the origins of the gcs and indeed maybe some of the fundamental components and and which are the most sensitive elements so the glasgow coma score or gcs is not new it was first published in 1974 by teasdale and Jennett who are professors of neurosurgery at the University of Glasgow Southern General Hospital, which no longer exists. Um, and they looked at this score around prognosis, prognosis after head injury. Um, and I think the first thing that when you read the original Teasdale and Janet paper is that it says this should be applied 24 hours post-injury. Um, and this has really developed into an absolute pillar of pre-hospital practice that we use this score. Um, for all kinds of things. And we certainly are using it in groups of patients who have not got head injury. We use it in medical patients. And it really has just become a common language of the collapsed or decreased LOC patient. Um, it was adapted about two years after it was published and then went to the current 15 point test. Um, and it is absolutely within everything we do in terms of our patient assessment. It is a component of the trauma score. It's a component of the trauma and injury severity score the TIS score it falls into the apache scores um as well as it's in our everyday language we all think we know what a patient with a gcs of eight looks like we all think we know this um we talk about it all of the time um and back in 1979 um Janet then published some papers that looked at gcs within the first 24 hours an outcome and this was the first time we'd used it in a more acute setting. Um, and this was what happened to patients of certain GCSs um, in the concept of isolated head injury. And this study really showed us that actually, if you have a low GCS, you end up doing really badly. 
Now, but you have to put that in the context of this was a paper published in 1979. I hadn't even been born at that point, not by much, but I hadn't been born. Um, and how we were treating head injuries. So we've really got to challenge ourselves that these are probably not figures that we would recognise in a modern healthcare system today. But what it probably does tell us is that the lower the GCS in the concept of isolated head injury, the worse you'll do. There are challenges with GCS. Um, um, and there are significant studies over the years that look at inter-rater inter reliability. And it is pretty poor inter-rater reliability. And I say this as somebody who works in a clinical directorate of a large ambulance service. When you look at GCSs, you have GCSs of three, you have GCSs of 15, you have GCSs of a bit less than 15, and you have GCSs of somewhere in the middle. Um, and that's what seems to come out. And actually, we all should challenge ourselves. that This is a tool that does have some use, but you actually have to do it and you actually have to score it. And you need to look at exactly what the patient does. And there are bits of it, particularly around motor function, that are a little bit difficult in terms of actually, is that flexion abnormal or is it a patient just localizing? Um, is that somebody withdrawing or is it abnormal extension? And you do have to look at that and you have to make sure that you are applying a deep stimulus in a consistent manner. You need to make sure that deep stimulus is applied centrally to the patient um, to help with our interrelator reliability. And you actually have to do the score. And you have to go through what the eye score, what the vocal score is, and what the motor score is. And you then have to also consider um, how useful this is in a patient who is not speaking the language that you speak. Um, and how do you assess confusion in that patient? Um, and all of those bits suggest that it's interrelated reliability is poor. And certainly I fairly regularly see the same group of clinicians all come up with a different GCS for the same patient. Um, when you look at the components of GCS and you look at eyes, voice and motor, there is some work by Healy and Osler and others around that motor score is the better predictor in terms of long-term outcome than either the combined score or the other elements of the score. So you look at the motor score, that seems to be a better predictor. That said, all of that work is nearly done on isolated head injury patients. Um, we have done relatively little work about that score as a standalone triage criteria, although there is work going on at the moment looking at that, there's relatively little work as it being used to triage patients. Um, and so the R data, which is now a few years old in London, where we looked at uh, the patients presenting Glasgow Coma Score and what their injury severity score was, there was very little correlation, very little correlation between the two of them, other than if you had a GCS of three, you had quite high injury severity scores, but that wasn't universal at all. And again, when we looked at motor score component versus injury severity score, again, there was very little correlation in that. And that's from some data we did in London when we were looking at triage tools now about 10 years ago. Um, so although motor score seems to predict head injury outcome better, 
I think the jury's still out on whether it has a use um, as a triage indicator. And there is certainly some work shortly to be published by the team at Sheffield, led by Gordon Fuller, about triage tools. And I'm absolutely sure that will contain some data about what bits of GCS we should be using. Um, I also think one of the other key things is when you're scoring patients at the side of the road, you need to be using the tool that's most familiar to you. And if you're used to using complete GCS, perhaps that's what we should be using because that's what's most familiar rather than just perhaps motor score. Mark, you make some great points there. And one of the things I, I kind of dawned on me and a revelation of um, quite, quite late on in my practice, to be honest, was actually, like you said, breaking down the score so that you can walk someone through how you've rated a score so that they can they can map across and follow your follow your scoring but also to another point you made around as a poor indicator of mortality because um in a presentation that you give and examples that you give uh in a, in a really insightful way you know you might have a 48 year old male um cyclist struck by a car so they've their eyes are three their voice is five their motor six they've got gcs of 14 they may have a fractured pelvis and they may be five minutes from they might be in a peri-arrest situation they're gcs 14 they but but they're five minutes away from death there it doesn't signify the injury load or indeed how severe this patient is again it could be a 19 year old male single stab wound to the to, to, to the um, sixth intercostal space and, and again bleeding to death gcs 14 um but doesn't it doesn't indicate that gcs 14 doesn't ref reflect how serious that patient is so so they're almost not good prognosticators of how sick a patient a patient truly is I think what we do know is that GCS probably has some utility in head injury, but we equally know that there's a group of the head injury patients and depending where you see them in their disease progression, you can see an extradural who may have had a low GCS initially post-injury, um, has had a recovery and is now in that lucid period before a subsequent collapse. And I completely agree with you. I I'm always minded of a patient I saw a number of years ago um, who was as close to death as any patient you could imagine, um, had been impacted by a car, had massive, massive pelvis injuries and hemorrhage, was a, as white as a sheet, to quote the phrase, with blood pressures on an arterial line that were measuring 50 systolic, 40 systolic and going down. And they were still talking to us. And when you look at that patient, realistically the lowest you'd get their GCS was to 14, just losing one for eye opening. And you were going, this patient's going to die. Um, and on a different day, perhaps we'll talk about kind of hemorrhage and hemorrhage recognition, but we know it's a particularly bad tool in recognizing the patient who's bleeding, but probably has a bit more utility in our head injury group. So Mark, I'd just like to pivot slightly and just look at the trauma score and the revised trauma score. Um, I know that they, they, they came from very different origins, but could you speak to where they did come from and, and their utility? So the trauma score was developed back in the early 80s. It was championed with the original author of this. And it was very much as around a triage system, looking at how you could use physiological values Um to determine perhaps whether the patient needed to go to a major trauma center, whether they needed enhanced care. It was very much that early level of triage assessment 
Um, and what we know from the data that looked at it um, had sensitivity circa 80%. So for those of us who struggle with sensitivity and specificity, sensitivity and 80% will give you eight out of 10 patients with significant injury will get detected by the score. And specificity, so a third of patients will end up have um, will be identified as having serious injuries who do not have serious injuries. So it was not a great tool, both either in terms of sensitivity with two in 10 patients or 20% not being detected and a third of patients um, being detected who don't end up having significant injury. There is no validation of it in children and there never has been, um, but it was very much designed as a very quick, rapid to do side of the road assessment um, to look at severity um, and has and was used for a number of years. I think the other bit I would always say with this is that you've also got to look and remember that these scores about where they're applied in a patient's journey. And if you work in a modern developed system where you're seeing these patients very close to the point of wounding or injury, um, their physiological values look different to perhaps when you're seeing them an hour, two hours, three hours in a system where you have a more sterile remote environment. Um, and actually there is differences in that. And certainly in a modern developed EMS system with relatively short response times, um, you may be seeing these patients before physiological change occurs. Um, the other thing I would always say, anytime we talk about physiological scoring, is that only as good as the numbers that you put in. And we know that the greatest work of fiction in medicine is the patient's respiratory rate because everyone looks at a patient and writes a respiratory rate down as 18. Um, I spent some time in the coroner's court recently for a patient who had a respiratory rate recorded as 18 um, with bilateral flail segments and sats in their 70s. I'm pretty sure their respiratory rate wasn't 18. Um, so where, and we know from some of the work in the news scores looking at medicine that respiratory rate probably is one of the earlier changes, but it's also probably one of the ones we do worst. Um, but the other bit is you always have to have a little eye towards the patient's baseline. Um, clearly, Owen, you're a model of peak physical performance, probably have a heart rate resting of about 40 or 50. I am certainly not, and my resting heart rate is not 40 or 50. Um, but actually, if you have that athletic patient what is the relative tachycardia for that patient? What is a relative hypertension for that patient? So you've, whenever you look at physiological scorings, you've got to have an eye to what the patient's baseline is. So looking at, I fundamentally agree with that. And, and, and like you said, I think that's why it can be quite difficult in the pre-hospital environment, because that can be just that can be pharmacologically adjusted through beta blood blockers or, or, other, or otherwise but yes yeah, getting that semblance of baseline is, is quite difficult when you don't know the patient um and indeed when you've got maybe no one on scene to 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 infer what that baseline is could you maybe speak to the revised trauma score why why did it need to be revised and, and what were the updates so the score was revised by the original authors it was revised in 1989 and really to simplify the trauma score and improve its reliability so it removed a capillary refill, it removed respiratory efforts. And what you end up with is a score that ranges from zero to 12, uh, zero being death and 12 being normal physiology. And it showed some level improved sensitivity and specificity, but 
but this seems to vary between the papers. When you look at the reviews of this score, what the actual sensitivity and specificity are is quite variable in the literature. Um, and it went on to be able to do some work, early work about weighting each component to produce a probability survival statistic. So it kind of took the trauma score, refined it a bit, made it a bit easier to apply and a bit more consistent. It saw some improvements in sensitivity and specificity, but still some variability. And then as you go forward, it allows you to do some weighting um, around survival. And this comes into that's often referred to as the RTS or the revised trauma score. Um, that said, you still have a challenge. And if we go back to the patient you cited earlier, that 19 year old with single penetrating trauma, who's got a systolic blood pressure of greater than 89, a respiratory rate of 25 and a GCS of 15, they will look relatively normal on an RTS, but none of us would want to have that injury. And most of us would be clinically worried about that patient until we knew more. So looking at the Apache score, or indeed the Apache scale, uh, Mark, could you maybe break it down? So I believe it stands for the sort of acute physiological chronic health evaluation score. Uh, it, it may or may not be common. It certainly wasn't common knowledge for me, but was maybe used more in hospital. But could you maybe speak to why it came about and what it was used for? So it very much is around looking at severity of injuries within the first 24 hours of patients ICU stay. Um, uh, it's one of the first scores and um, to really look at pre-injury health status. It's been around for a long time now. It's as old as I am. Um, it has 34 separate elements in the original score. Um, it was revised in the mid 80s to 12 elements. Um, and it does weight the score according to chronic health status and organ dysfunction. It now has a use and it is reported still in some of the general ICU literature. Um, it clearly is completely impossible uh, to undertake pre-hospitally in any meaningful way. Um, it requires a level of calculation that certainly I would require a computer to do. Um, but it very much was around that first day in ITU. But again, it's helpful in a way because it was the first time we started to look at what's the patient's baseline and what's their deviation from baseline um, in a scoring system. It's certainly not something that either you or I would use in our clinical practice. Um, it does appear, it appears in some of the trauma literature, um, and it looks mainly at the in-hospital mortality risk of that patient. As we said before, Margaret, and this is this is something you mentioned around, you know, it's it's useful to have even just a uh, familiarization or induced an acknowledgement of these scores because if they crop up in papers, then it's really useful from just from a contextual perspective to know the origins and and what they're used for. Because, like you said, that baseline over time, and and again, ITU have a a, a very different um, horizon of of trending and indeed of trajectory for patients because they get to stay with patients for longer. They get to see the, the upwards or downwards trend. They get to see the effect of treatment over time and they've got different parameters of, of monitoring. So it's, it's, but it's just useful to, to get to know some of these, some of these scores. So the next one will be the CRAMS uh, score. So uh, very much a, maybe an anatomical one. So the circulation, res re respiration, abdominal, thoracic, motor and speech scale. Could you, is, is this an ITU score? where did this one come from so this was developed again it's a score from the early 80s at gormican who was the original author on the paper um 
and this is a this is a true physiological measure. This is a score that looks at physiological response. Um, I think when we look at any of these scores, and if we go back to the Apache score, um, that's an ITU score, you've got to remember that only a very small percentage of our major trauma patients end up on ICU. There'll be a number of patients who are absolutely considered major trauma pre-hospital, and rightly so, that don't end up having their care escalated to that multi-organ support required in ICU. Um, the CRAM score was, again, looking at injury severity, uh, with a score between 0 and 10, 10 being uninjured, um, and a score less than 8 representing major trauma. Uh, it shows some improvement in terms of sensitivity and specificity. Um, than perhaps the trauma, the revised trauma score and the trauma score. Um, one of the flaws or one of the bits you've got to be aware about of this is they used immediate surgery as the proxy measure for major trauma when they developed the score. And I think it would be fair in a modern healthcare system to be acutely aware that although many major trauma patients do require immediate surgery, that is not the entirety of the population that we look after. Um, and I think what we should be just aware of that when we uh, think about this score particularly that this is more than the whole of or this is a subset of the whole of major trauma um, and certainly there has been some critique of this in the literature um, and some authors very much have said well it's probably not much better than clinical judgment but the bit you always have to ask around that is the experience of the clinicians applying their judgment and actually in a large EMS system, actually, how many patients do you see who are truly hypovolemic? Um, how many patients do you see on the cusp of that hypovolemia? So they're some of the kind of scores that have existed through um, the kind of development of trauma scoring. So looking at the abbreviated injury score, so just looking at, at um the pivot that so the abbreviated injury score seemed to crop up quite commonly and so it starts to become a common denominator in in trauma could you maybe speak to its inception and indeed its 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 use as sort of the as, as an anatomical scoring system and indeed just how the injury severity score sort of builds on the uh, on the abbreviated injury score yeah um so Anatomical trauma scores are all based on the actual patient's injury load. Unlike the physiological scoring, which you have some hope of doing with a patient in front of you, an anatomical score very much requires you to know about the complete injury load of the patient. Therefore, you require a completed examination, be that imaging as well as other modalities or a postmortem. Um, it's retrospective. You cannot do this at the patient's side. Therefore, this is an academic exercise. Um, the abbreviated injury scale, um, the early work was back in the 50s by De Haven's group, and AIS was first introduced by the American Association and the Association for the Advancement of Automotive Medicine for Vehicle Crash Investigation. So this was looking at how badly patients were injured after a road traffic accident. Um, it was updated in the 90s to make it more relevant for medical research, and it really is a tool for comparing injuries. And on its own, it does not account for multiple injuries. Um, what it does is it defines the relative threat to life of an injury. Um, and you then code that injury to get 
an AIS score, which is your threat to life. So there is an AIS dictionary, yeah, and each injury literally has a code in this dictionary, um, and you code based on the chapters, and there is a chapter for each body region. And an AIS of one is a minor injury, and an AIS of six is an unsurvivable injury. And it is a pure assessment of injury severity. So looking at, at that, and it's, like you said, entirely retrospective, doesn't really help us necessarily in, in the moments when we're, where we're trying to code and or indeed uh, treat trauma. But could you, could you speak to the injury severity score and how it sort of builds on the AIS? The final two bits about the AIS, just as we move on, is an injury severity score of six or an unsurvivable injury is exactly that. It is an unsurvivable injury. It does not mean that the patient has died of that injury. Um, and you will see patients who have much lower AISs who die of that injury. Um, so an AI, an AI, I always give the example of an AIS of six being a ruptured heart. The other thing with this is it is the injury itself it is coding for, not the potential complications of that injury. So it does not account for the patient who's got a fractured mid-shaft femur that develops a infection or a pulmonary embolism. And, but when you then go on, the injury severity score or IS, ISS, is probably the most widely used anatomical scoring system. It was introduced in the uh, mid seventies. Um, and it very much is the absolute bedrock of trauma research. And you pick up any trauma journal today, you'll find a paper in it that's reporting a patient's ISS. Um, and what it does is it uses um, the ISS, uses the AIS as its foundation. You code the injuries in each of the six anatomical regions with the highest AIS. So what you do is you look at all the regions in the thoracic cavity um, or the chest, look at all of the injuries in the uh, abdomen, all of the injuries in the extremities, all of the injuries in the head, and where there are two or more injuries in one body component or compartment, you code only the injury that has got the most significant scoring. Um, you then add the three highest AIS scores together. Yeah, uh, which are squared. Sorry, you square them and add them together. So for the ISS, what you do is you square the three high AIS scores and add them together. And any AIS of six equates to an injury severity score of 75. And back in the early days of doing this, uh, Long's group published some research that said, if you have an ISS of greater than 16, uh, you have about a 10% mortality. Maybe, if you look at the work. So what effectively this does is it looks at injury severity um, across the body regions and it takes the highest injury severity scores from each body region but there's a but that follows this Owen I'm afraid um, first of all this was developed to look at um, injury severity in motor vehicle accidents which by definition are blunt trauma in the main um, therefore it is not good at looking at severity in penetrating sing often single body system injuries it does not account for physiological change. Clearly, it's an anatomical score. It does not account for complications. 
it is highly dependent on accurate coding. Um, and we know that particularly um, in some settings, getting accurate injury coding, particularly for our patients who've died, is really challenging. Um, and I have looked at a post-mortem report recently that said cause of death, multiple injuries. And you just go, that's not really helpful. Um, which I have no doubt it was true, but it would be really helpful to know a little bit more. Um, so actually, it's quite difficult to do. And actually, if you go back to the two patients you talked about earlier, our motor vehicle patient and our stabbing and our penetrating trauma, actually, they end up with very different um, uh, AIS scores because one group, one of those patients will have potentially, yeah, injuries across body regions. They might have a small temporal fracture, a small subdural, maybe a few rib fractures, maybe a liver laceration, maybe a displaced tibia fracture, maybe some skin abrasions, which all add up. Whereas then you look at the 19-year-old who has a hemoneumothorax, that only is in one body component system. So there are some flaws in this in terms of when you use it to compare blunt and penetrating trauma. It is, as I said earlier, the dark arts of this, and you've got to understand exactly what you're looking at for them to be useful. It's really interesting you say that actually, and it's also just like you said, interesting to look at the limitations of these tools because, um, again, sometimes they don't infer the the full injury load or indeed the 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 uh, immediacy of the uh, of the insult. Just looking at the new injury severity score, and then indeed the tris uh, as we're coming into land. So, so could you could you speak to the sort of the 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 new injury severity score and how that pivots from the ISS? So one of the challenges with ISS, and when you look at it, is what about the patient who has multiple significant injuries in one body compartment? And the the best example of this I can think of is to look at lower limb amputation. That you will score the same on your ISS if you have one leg amputated versus if you have two legs amputated because they're in the same body component system. Um, yet we know from, I think it's Brampus's work back in 2010, your mortality doubles if you have a single lower limb amputation versus a bilateral amputation, your mortality rate doubles. Um, therefore, it's um, ISS is not particularly helpful in a patient who's got significant multiple injuries in the same body compartment. Um, and the new injury severity score developed in the late 90s was aimed to account for some of the shortfalls. And the way it did that um, is it looked at the sum of the squares of the AISs in the top, most th top three most severe patient injuries. So it looked very much around what the injuries, the most severe injuries were, as opposed to what the most severe injuries were in each body compartment. Um, and it was reported to be more reliable as a potential indicator of mortality than ISS alone. Um, but it still has some flaws, yeah. Um, and it still isn't particularly good on that patient who has that absolutely catastrophic single system injury that is dying with an immediate clinical need in front of you. And without getting into the whys and wherefores of this, think about the patient who has a massive tension hemothorax. 
And I know there is always debate about this, but I think it's just a helpful example. That patient who is gasping, who has unilateral chest pathology, um, absolutely has that sucking chest wound and is getting worse with this. And with a relatively simple intervention, you correct that. And then that patient doesn't have tension physiology. They just have a small pneumothorax. And that does not get picked up in these scoring systems. And that is an absolute weakness of these scores. And a challenge is that some of these patients will have injuries that are absolutely going to kill them if left uncorrected. Um, and everyone can write to you about whether you think attention pneumothorax is a real disease in a spontaneously breathing patient. I think it is, by the way. Um, but they are absolutely a challenge with this group of patients. So Mark, just pivoting, looking at the TRIS score, so the trauma and injury severity score, could you maybe speak to, um, this is sort of, a, sort of a combined score around with the, with the sort of major trauma outcome study. Could, could you maybe speak to the combined scores because they, they do maybe bridge the gap between physiological and anatomical trauma scores. Could you, could you maybe speak to the adage of them? Yeah. So they are effectively a combination of looking at physiological measures, combining that with, um, the anatomical injury scores and the TRIS score is probably the best known of them. Um, and it determines the probability of survival or PS score. And it's from both the ISS and the RTS. So the revised trauma score and the injury severity score. And it uses a level of calculations that if you can understand these calculations, you shouldn't be in clinical medicine as far as I can work out. Um, is that they are at really complex. It puts some age indicators into it. Um, and there, it also applies some coefficients for blunt versus penetrating. Um, and it aims to provide you with a potential mortality score for that patient. Um, and very much looks at whether you think that patient has got um, a survivable injury or not. Um, and there are challenges with it. It's not, and it is only as good as the data that goes into it. Yeah. Um, and that then uses, a, it develops a PS or the WS score in other systems and other bits of modality to look at whether you think that patient is a survivor, whether you have an unexpected survival or an unexpected death. And that then starts to allow you to compare unexpected deaths across systems. Um, it allows you to look at performance, but these are flawed. And if you are a trauma system with the highest degree of acuity, you will see, and by the fact you are flowing patients in to these systems, um, your numbers may look different and your confidence interviews with those numbers may look different to perhaps if you're a very small major trauma system or center who are only looking after a select group of patients. So there are some challenges with this. Um, but they often are now used very much as that tool for benchmarking. I, th I think you make a great point there about ubiquity of scoring, because, again, if 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 there is disparate models being used or scores being used, it's, it's the, the comparators are almost impossible, actually. 
But as we as we come into land, Mark, and a couple more questions, really. One is so this this final Ascot score that we that we uh, that I mentioned earlier. If you could speak to that, and then if you could just speak speak to some of the fundamental limitations of of trauma scoring. So the Ascot score is a severity characterization of trauma. It's very much around an anatomical profile rather than an ISS. Um, may have increased reliability. May predict death rate. It's not used a lot in the UK. Um, it has some uses in Europe, and you're seeing it a little bit more in the literature. It was developed, um, again, by Champion back in the mid-90s. Um, you see it in some of the European literature, and it's worth just having a read of and just getting your heads around if you're looking at st- systems that are using it as a comparator. Um, it, But it is out there. I've seen less and less of it in the literature the more I read of this. But it is definitely out there. Yeah. Um, And you kind of we do this because it's helpful for us to look at and classify injuries. Um, It may help us with triage, but often these scores are very clunky. Some of them and those that require anatomical decisions are not helpful as a triage tool. but they do help us look at injury severity. They help us look at um, needs and how we balance resource across a system. And they may even allow some comparison of the system. Um, but they all take time to do. Um, we need to be also aware when we're looking at these scores about if these are being drawn from registry retrospective data, what's the entry criteria for the registry? Is it a registry that accepts all comers or do you have to be admitted for a certain period of time? Um, I have this. We don't often look at deaths outside of the hospital environment in retrospective registry data, and we probably should. Um, And we need to be very, very careful when we start looking at funding based on performance on these tools, because the moment you put money aside anything, your ability to use the tool becomes a bit more challenged and people will be very critical of it so there have got some um limitations and i always tell the story when we were talking about pre-hospital triage of saturday meeting with a very senior nhs finance manager who said to me surely it's really easy mark when the patient's been run over by a bus the ambulance crew just have to work out what injuries they have and just take them to the hospital and that's how you do a triage um so it's not that simple. We have to really be careful about it. Um, this is, as I said at the beginning of this, the dark arts of trauma research. But I do think for those of us who've got an academic interest in trauma and particularly survival from trauma, you need to look at these, you need to read them, but you need to have a healthy scepticism with them all. You need to have the inquiring mind bit of it and treat them with a high degree of caution. I think as we do come into landmark, it is an exciting time for trauma research. There's a real opportunity to both code and record trauma nationally and internationally in a, in a new way. And so there's there is opportunities now that maybe we've never seen before. As we as we finish off, could you could you maybe speak to some just take home messages for listeners that you'd like to mention and or what the future might hold? So I think. There are many things on the horizon. There are absolutely lots of questions about how we should be triaging our trauma patients. Uh, There is some very exciting work going on around the world about trauma triage tools. Um, We 
But we also have to remember that your triage tool will look differently depending on your system and your capabilities and capacity within the system. I think we should continue to challenge ourselves on tools we've used historically for trauma research. We should have that absolute degree of skepticism with everything we read and be really minded that we've got to look at exactly what was being scored in these tools. Um, I think we should all have a base level understanding of these tools. And I think it helps us understand the literature. But as we go forward, there's lots and lots we're talking about pre-hospital trauma management. But ultimately, we've got to think to ourselves, how do we recognise that patient who is on the cusp of physiological decline, who has only the most subtle changes in their observations, and that we know that exactly how we need to nuance our care for that patient, who is absolutely on that cusp, um, and recognising that patient. And some of that is around experience. Some of it is around clinical nuance. Some of it you won't get right all of the time, but you have to do that in a safe way and you have to make safe decisions. And some of that is around us making sure that we are telling our clinicians in pre-hospital systems what's happened to their patients, because you can only develop clinical nuance or clinical gestalt or other other word you want to use for it if you know what happens to those patients. And there is a level of our practice which is scientific and there is a level of it which is art. And some of that art is around pattern recognition, but you can only recognize that pattern if you've got really good outcome data to educate clinicians. And on another day, perhaps we'll talk to you about how you can get really good outcome data for patients, Owen. Mark, thank you for your time today. Those are absolutely fantastic, salient points. And you raised some fantastic pointers throughout the interview, um, some of which we'll definitely revisit on another podcast. But thank you. Thanks very much, Owen. You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network. 